Thank you so much, James, and the members of New Covenant Baptist Church for hosting this and for having me. It's good to see so many of you all again. Uh, thank you to all of you who have come, whether from D.C. or Montgomery County or farther away in Maryland or Virginia or even North Carolina. Thanks for coming. Uh, thank you for the gift of this time together. I look forward to studying God's Word with you and our times of conversation. So we'll have a teaching time, then kind of a Q&A time that James will moderate, and then some time for small group discussions in the first session. Second session, we'll have a teaching time and then kind of an open Q&A where you can ask anything from either session. Um, just to give you a little bit of a preview of both talks, you should have a handout. Yes, looks like most everybody has one. If you don't, put up a hand and somebody from New Covenant Baptist Church will help you get one. Yeah, keep a hand up. You'll get a handout. Uh, it'll help you to follow along for both sessions. To give you a preview of both, uh, the first talk is going to be on ministry broadly. Ministry as something all Christians do. Uh, ministry in the context of the whole of Scripture. You'll see we'll do a brief biblical theology of ministry. So this is men and women. This is every Christian. This is whether you ever get paid to do anything for a church or not. And we'll kind of funnel into the question then at the very end of the first session about when should your ministry be your job uh, as a matter of a general principle. Trying to think through that question about full-time Christian work in a broad sense. The second session is going to focus specifically on men who aspire to the office of pastor. Uh, so that's going to be the bullseye of the second session, but I want to teach on that subject in a way that's relevant to everybody, thinking about what you're looking for in a pastor, thinking about the role of a pastor and how you should relate to pastors in your local church. So first session explicitly for everybody, second session the bullseye is men who aspire to ministry, but hopefully in a way that's useful for everybody listening in. Uh, I want to begin our first session by talking about a ministry I did not want to have this week. My church is very generous where I serve full-time as an associate pastor. They gave me a sabbatical a month this summer. All of the full-time long-term pastors can take sabbatical. So I just read and wrote for a month straight, which was glorious and very restful to me anyways. Uh, then my family and I took a vacation after sabbatical. So as if the rest of sabbatical wasn't enough, we took 10 days, drove up to Maine, saw family, had a great time. It was super restful. A whole other level of rest after the rest of sabbatical. So we came back on Saturday a week ago, and I was very eager to get back to serving my church full-time, seeing people, counseling, teaching, preparing for this seminar, clearing out my inbox from a sabbatical's worth of stuff, etc. I was raring to go, but on Saturday night at the very end of our drive, when we got home, my wife took a test and tested positive for COVID. Yeah, there that was. There went my week. So my church is very understanding. Uh, nobody was upset with me for having to care for my family. But instead of having the ministry of returning to full-time service of my church, it was much more like full-time service of my family with a little bit of church ministry sprinkled in. I taught Bible study. I helped prepare for this. I did what I could to care for members in various ways while I was mainly cooking and cleaning and taking my kids to the pool. And yeah, there was, there was gifts in that. But in my own heart, it was not the ministry I wanted. I had to adjust my own desires. I had to adjust what I was set on. And to my shame, it took me more effort and work, and it took longer than it should have to pivot from the ministry I thought I was going to have this week to the ministry the Lord insisted I would have this week, the ministry He lovingly and wisely ordained for me to have. And I share that partly to confess my own sins and failures to you all, but also partly to show how easy it is for any of us, when it comes to thinking about how to serve the Lord and serve the church, how easy it is for any of us to kind of set up a narrow little framework of what we want to do and then to dictate the terms of service, to dictate the terms on which we will serve God and serve others. And really, even just from the very words we're using, service or ministry, to talk about service or ministry is a posture of humility. It's a posture of helping. It's a posture of submission. It's a posture of putting somebody else's agenda, concerns, needs, benefits ahead of your own. And I very much struggle to do that in balancing the different stewardships the Lord has given me. So I want to kind of set that out as a framework and as a pitfall for us to consider what are ways we might be tempted to dictate the terms on which we will serve the Lord or the church. And I hope that the scriptures we get into will help rewire the way we're thinking. So to give you kind of a big idea for this first session, you'll see there on your handout, point one, uh, a brief biblical theology of ministry. 
My goal in this time, kind of the first half of the message, is to reframe ministry, this word, this concept. Ministry is broader, it's bigger, it's wider, and it's deeper than what we often think it is. And I'm going to try to quickly run through all of Scripture in a series of snapshots to show us how that's the case. So, we're going to look at creation, fall, redemption, and consummation, scriptural discussions of each, how that relates to worship, service, and ministry. So, first, Genesis 1, 26 to 28, also with, ver- with chapter 2, verse 15. This is at the creation. This is God creating humanity as the crown of His creation. Here's what He says. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is God's original plan and pattern for our lives in creation and it remains valid today. It remains the charter for what it means to be a human being in the fullest sense of the word. God is our creator and Lord, so we live in submission to him, glad and willing, honoring him reflecting His character. That's integral to what it means to be made in the image of God, is to reflect His character, to submit to His rule, to show the world what He is like by living under His good rule and rules. So, we face God in the sense of depending on Him, relying on Him, honoring Him, submitting to Him, and we face creation as those whom God has put in authority over it. And our service of creation is at the same time service to God. So as we fill the earth, as we subdue it, as we are fruitful and multiply, as we develop the capacities that are inherent in creation to help it flourish and bring good to others, we're glorifying God by how we use created realities. We're glorifying God by how we serve people in temporal ways. That's what it means to be made in God's image and to fulfill the commission He's given us that's built into creation. So, all of life should consist in devoting ourselves to God and devoting everything we do in and with creation to God, being consecrated to God and consecrating creation to God. And this gets a little more specific in the task God gives Adam, in particular in Genesis 2.15. He puts him in the Garden of Eden, and it says in Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So, he's meant, to, he's meant to cause the garden to flourish. He's also meant to protect it, to preserve it, to keep it pure and holy and devoted to the Lord. And those two verbs, work and keep, you could also translate as serve and guard. Those two verbs, work and keep, or serve and guard, are also used of the tasks of the priests and the Levites under the Old Covenant with what they're meant to do to protect the purity and holiness, the sanctity of God's tabernacle where He dwells with His people. So, Eden, the garden, is a dwelling place for God with His people, and Adam's task is to keep it pure and holy. And that's patterned on what the priest's task is going to be of keeping God's dwelling with His people in the tabernacle, pure, holy, free from defilement, free from anybody coming in who doesn't belong there, free from anything happening in it that isn't meant to happen in it. So, there's a task of preserving, protecting, guarding. So, this general task of developing creation is specified in terms of keeping it devoted to God, keeping it devoted to God's purposes, keeping it holy, pure, set apart for Him. What does that have to do with ministry? What it has to do with ministry is in this founding charter of human life, all of our life in one way or another should be a ministry to the Lord and a ministry to others, reflecting His character, imaging His holiness, embodying His purposes, and doing with creation, interacting with other people in ways that only honor Him, glorify Him, serve Him, reflect Him, are in submission to Him. So, the basic biblical pattern of a life lived rightly before God and others is a life of ministry, that is, service, that is, being devoted to God and devoting everything you do 
to God. These are priestly prerogatives. So that's what happens in the beginning. And Psalm 100 kind of gives us a picture of this life fully devoted to God. Psalm 100, I'll read the whole thing. It's really kind of a reflection on creation and on what we owe God in light of creation. You can turn there if you like. I'll just read the whole thing briefly. Psalm 100, a psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. For the Lord is good, His steadfast love endures forever, and His faithfulness to all generations. If you wanted, you could divide this psalm up into two columns. Column one is who God is and what He's done for us. Column two is what we are to do in response, in relating to Him. Who, who is God? He's our creator. He's our shepherd. He's our redeemer. He's pledged Himself to us in covenant love. He's the one who's created us. He possesses us. He sustains us. He provides for us as His sheep, the sheep of His uh, pasture. So He does everything for us. He gives everything to us. He provides all that we need. And so in response, we serve Him with gladness. We devote ourselves totally to Him. We honor Him with our lips. Not just with our lips, though, but from a cheerful heart, a heart that gives thanks to Him because His steadfast love endures forever. So we could summarize this very simply as saying, we serve Him because He first served us. That's the structure of creation. That's the structure of human life. We get everything we have from God. So all that we do and all that we have, we should return to God as an act of sacrificial service and praise. As Paul puts it, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? So in a sense, by talking about ministry, we're talking about all of human existence. By talking about simply what it means to be a human, it's to live in dependence on God, service to God, and rightly ordered to be a human is to be totally devoted to God. Here's what the uh, Book of Common Prayers, Second Collect for Peace, says, how it addresses the Lord, kind of summarizes a lot of what we've been saying. O God, who art the author of peace and lover of concord, in knowledge of whom standeth our eternal life, whose service is perfect freedom, whose service is perfect freedom, to minister to God, And to minister to others in God's name is to be free, free from selfishness, free from care, free from worldly entanglements, free from idolatry. To serve God, to worship Him, to minister to Him is true freedom. That is ministry according to creation. But sadly, we also have to address worship, ministry, service according to the fall. Humanity's fundamental problem is misplaced worship. We have given ourselves over to serving the wrong God. We've put all sorts of created realities into the place of God and devoted ourselves ultimately to those things instead of God. So here's what Paul says in Romans 1, 21 to 25. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature. Rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever, amen. Corrupt ministry, corrupt service, corrupt worship is at the heart of our problem. That's at the heart of what Christ came to address by His saving work. So, point three, redemption. We're going to consider four passages briefly and kind of camp out on the last one the most here. Four aspects of how Christ's redeeming work transforms us and enables a right ministry to God. So we're going to start with Christ's saving service. Mark 10, 42 to 45, 
Jesus' disciples have come to him asking who's going to be the greatest. Uh, Can one of them sit at his right hand in the position of most favor, honor, glory, recognition? Jesus has to retool how they're thinking about ministry and serving him, and he says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. So according to creation, we serve God because He first served us. But even more, doubly so, in our redemption, we serve Him because He first served us. Because Christ Himself came not to be served, but to serve. And the chief act of that service was giving His life to redeem us, to pay the price for the sins we had all committed against God's holiness, to liberate us from the penalty of that sin, and to free us into a life completely devoted to God's service, living by the resurrection power that He Himself works in us. So that brings us to the second aspect of our redemption, the Spirit-enabled new covenant empowered whole life of ministry. We see this especially clearly in Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. This is Paul's big pivot after he's laid out his whole gospel, after he's addressed the problem of Israel's unbelief and God's faithfulness to his promises. After 11 chapters of soaring theological exposition, this is what Paul turns to practically. He says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect." So what Paul's doing here is he's borrowing vocabulary from the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant. Uh, They would take animals and slaughter them and take the blood or different parts of the body, and they would bring it into the parts of the tabernacle and present it before the Lord. So they they were taking the body of an animal and presenting it as a holy offering to God. So what Paul's doing is he's saying, you now take your own body. Make that an offering to the Lord. And by, of course, by taking your bodies, he means all of your abilities, all of your capacities, your thoughts, your action, your speech. Take all of that and devote it to God as a living sacrifice. This is a sacrifice that keeps on going. This is a sacrifice that pervades your whole experience. So he's using language of worship that if you think in terms of kind of a sacred secular distinction… He's, he's kind of saying, well, this, this area of the sacred, of things devoted to God, the special place where He is, the special materials you have to bring to Him, that should be your whole life. So he's saying worship, that which is specifically devoted to God, that which is handed over for His purposes, that which is completely given up to Him, that worship should characterize everything you do. So when we're talking about ministry, we're talking about a kind of orientation of our whole lives from the heart, being reoriented to God as our greatest good, our chief joy, therefore being reoriented to others as being willing servants of them. So worship, you know, one of the pitfalls we can fall into when we talk about ministry or service or worship, we can think about ministry as kind of, okay, if I want to minister to the Lord, I have to have some type of job or task, some type of niche, some type of, you know, list I can kind of check off. And if I don't find that, if I don't have that, well, my ministry is being hindered. What Paul is saying here is that your whole life should be ministry to the Lord, and it starts from, then look at verse 2, it starts from not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewal of your mind, so that you can discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It starts from your own inward renewal, so that you know what pleases God, and you love to do what pleases Him in every area of life. There's lots of other passages in the New Testament, I list a few, that use this language of worship or service or ministry and apply it to all of life. Here's, here's just one uh, at the end of Hebrews 13, 15, and 16. It's again, it's another area of talk, talking about kind of 
uh, sacrificial service, talking about specifically ministry or service or worship that would belong to kind of the specifically holy realm, gifts, sacrifices, offerings, etc. And it applies it to very practical doing good deeds. So Hebrews 13, 15, and 16. Through Him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So, generosity, self-sacrificial service, hospitality, meeting the needs of God's people, those are all crucial ministries that all Christians should have. We shouldn't neglect them or despise them. The author of Hebrews uses this language of sacrificial worship, sacrificial ministry, to characterize how we share what we have with other believers, how we meet each other's needs and provide for each other in the body of Christ. A third point under redemption, the diverse, necessary, complementary ministries of every member. That is, every member of the body of Christ, every member of a local church, the diverse, necessary, complementary ministries of every member. Just a few verses from 1 Corinthians 12. It's really what the whole chapter is about. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 7. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities but it is the same God who empowers them all in every one. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So now our focus is on the corporate life of the church. How does the body of Christ get built up? How does the body of Christ grow to maturity so that we glorify Him more and more in our witness, how the way we adorn the gospel in our lives is more and more compelling? How do we become more and more spiritually fruitful together? How does the whole body become more healthy, more fruitful? Well, what Paul says here is that the Holy Spirit empowers each of us, and He does so with distinct, diverse, different gifts that all aim at the same goal of serving the common good. So, this is like the big plan. This is like the big blueprint. If you sort of do an x-ray of God's plans for the church, you kind of get at the structure underneath, right? You go, you go through the brick facade and you get to the steel and the foundation and all that. God is showing us that the fundamental way the body of Christ is built up is through every single gift that the Spirit has given to every single member being deployed for the common good. There's a radical sense in which the body needs every member's contribution. It grows through every member's contribution, and that diversity is irreducible. That diversity is a feature, not a bug. That diversity means, you know, we've got this, um, man, I can't even remember. This is so bad. I can't remember if it's like a, a Christian kid's book, and it's about gifts in the body of Christ, or if it's just a secular kid's book about contentment. Hang on. We got a book we read to our kids. If anybody's got little kids and you've read this book, help me out. There's like the animal who's sad about not having the gifts that all the other animals have. But then it goes around and it finally figures out, wait a minute, it's good that the eagle can soar. It's good that the lion can devour prey. It's good that the fish can swim. And I've, I've got my own gifts as a bunny or badger or rodent or whatever it was. <laughs> Nobody has apparently read this book to their kids. <laughs> Uh, anyways, my, my point in this half-baked illustration is there's an element of envy. There's an element of competition and comparison. There's a sense of zero sum. If I can't be an eagle, I got nothing. If I can't be a fish and swim in the water, I got nothing. But of course, the way God has orchestrated diversity in the body of Christ is that there should be no sense of competition. There should be no sense of envy. There's not a kind of hierarchy where these gifts are at the top, and if you don't have that, you got nothing. That's Paul's whole point that he then unpacks in the metaphor of the body, which we'll get into a little bit later in application. We'll kind of hold off on that for a minute. But the point is the diversity is good. The diversity is irreducible. We need every member's gifts contributing. So when we think about ministry, we should not think about a hierarchy. We should not think about pastors as better than other people. We should not think about this as somehow like the top of a pyramid or food chain, and that the farther you go down the food chain, the worse off you are, because the Spirit gives 
according to 1 Corinthians 12, he's empowering all these gifts in everyone. And then if you just skip down to verse 11, sorry, let me pull it up. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. So we should be in glad and joyful submission to the sovereignty of God when we discern gifts that we have or don't have. If you don't have a gift of teaching, whether the kind of gift that might, you know, qualify you potentially for the office of elder, or just if thinking about more broadly, a gift of teaching of kind of, you know, the way Fawn serves our senior ladies class, right? I think, I think our sister Fawn is a pronounced gift of teaching that she uses to serve our senior ladies at church. Uh, if you don't have a gift of teaching, that's okay. You should still seek to speak truth and love to others. You should still seek to build up others in love through, by speaking truth, as we're going to see in a minute. But that doesn't, you, you, don't, you don't have to like go try to start a Sunday school class. That's all right. The Holy Spirit has given different gifts to each one individually as He wills. So you should have a sense of freedom in submitting to the sovereignty of the Spirit as you try to serve in such a way that you discover and cultivate and maximize the gifts He's given you. We should not have a sense of envy or hierarchy or competition in how we think about ministry in the local church. We'll get to the body analogy a little bit more later. Fourth, then, under redemption, the ministry equipping role of elders. And do turn there if you have a Bible, Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 16. The ministry equipping role of elders. This is in the context of Christ's victorious ascension. He's defeated death. He's ascended on high. And as part of the victory of his ascension and his reign at God's right hand, he's distributing gifts to his church to empower and to build up. It's a manifestation of Christ's present power as the ascended Lord in equipping his church to be built up into his fullness. So it's talking about what Christ has given to his church. Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We're going to camp out here for a minute. I'm going to give you a little mini exposition of this passage. One big point kind of the heart of the passage, the goal of the gospel is a church complete in Christ, meaning what Christ died for and rose again for and ascended for and is pouring out gifts for is that the whole church would grow to maturity in Him. What does that maturity look like? It looks like doctrinal maturity, being stable and steadfast in the truth. It looks like being filled with love for other believers. It looks like measuring up into the stature of His fullness, which is to say, greater and greater conformity to His character. So the goal is for every member of the church to attain to more and more of that maturity, more and more of that conformity, more and more of that stability and steadfastness in the truth. That's the overall goal here. The second point, the purpose of pastors is to prepare people for ministry. So this is crucial to see in verses 11 and 12 shepherds and teachers, which are basically just two different names for pastors, different aspects of the role, shepherding and teaching. Verse 12, equip the saints for the work of ministry. So, pastors and teachers, in a sense, are standing up front, like, like I'm doing to you now, and Lord willing, tomorrow afternoon I'll get to preach, preach here at New Covenant uh, for their main service. So in a sense, pastors are up front, but, but the, the point of being up front is then to sort of lift up. The point of being up front is to get under, 
and to lift up the ministries to, to resource and equip, to instruct, to inform, to encourage, to inspire the ministries of all the members of the church. So, in one sense, pastors are up front. In one sense, pastors do have authority, leadership, instruction, overseeing the affairs of the church. In one sense, pastors are above. That's a legitimate aspect of the role. But in another sense, they're below and beneath, encouraging, equipping all the ministry of the members of the church. So, the rest of what the passage is talking about is stuff everybody does. The rest of what the passage is talking about is stuff that pastors are there to equip every single church member to do. So, attaining to the unity of the faith, not being children anymore. And then specifically, looking at verses 15 and 16, a few points we can make about this. Uh, I guess a third point in my mini-exposition, to be a growing Christian is to help others grow in Christ. So, that's verses 15 and 16, that's all of us, speaking the truth in love, We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, meaning the way we speak truth and love to one another, all of us ministering God's truth to each other, helps each other grow up into the head. And you know, it's funny, I obviously as a pastor, I'm sort of immersed in this kind of work on a day-to-day basis. I'm grateful for it. I love it. I benefit from it. It was funny, stepping away for a month of sabbatical and then even more for a week and a half of vacation, I just had much less fellowship than I normally did. You know, on, on my sabbatical, I'm keeping up spiritual disciplines. On my vacation, I got a little bit lax, so sleeping in a little bit, you know. And I'm with my family, which is great. I'm with extended family, which is great. But I just had less of this, speaking the truth in love, than I normally would. And, and stepping back in to my role as a pastor, in some ways it feels more fundamentally like just stepping back into my role as a member. And I show up and after evening service, Welton Bonner's encouraging me and we're, we're sharing what's been going on in our lives. And he's, I share something, he prays for me right then and there. You know, that kind of speaking the truth in love, I'm a beneficiary of it as much as I am a kind of a practitioner and proponent of it. It's something we're all meant to do to each other. To be a growing Christian is to help others grow in Christ. Point four in this mini exposition, speaking the truth in love is the bread and butter of discipleship. So I was at a little bit of a discipleship deficit. It was a gift to be away. It was a gift to be having peace and quiet and just looking out over the water and the trees, right? But speaking truth in love is the bread and butter of discipleship. Plugging back into the fellowship of my local church is helping me follow Jesus with a whole heart. I'm receiving that speaking the truth in love. So, on the one hand, not everybody has a gift of teaching. Not everybody needs to be behind a lectern. Not everybody needs to have a small group or a Sunday school class. But we all should be speaking truth in love. This is the fundamental engine of our growth, of taking the Bible and bringing it to bear on whatever the struggle of the day or week or month is. This is what pastors are here to equip all of us to do. And then just a fifth point Briefly, looking at the end there, we see how this fits with 1 Corinthians 12. We'll come back to 1 Corinthians 12. That very last phrase, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You could say this simply, the body grows as every member gives. Gives of the gifts they've been given, gives of their time, affection, effort, when each part is working properly. So again, the vision of how the church grows is fundamentally every member contributing to the growth, of, the growth of the whole using the gifts that the Spirit has given to them. That includes this kind of front line of being involved in each other's lives, speaking truth into each other's lives, talking one-to-one. It also includes deploying whatever gifts God has given us. So, the fact that In in some ways, the whole message kind of pivots right here. My whole kind of first session pivots right here on Ephesians 4.12, that pastors build up the saints for works of ministry, right? Uh, Contributing to the building up of the local church, that's not the whole of our life in Christ. We serve the common good. We serve people in need. We serve by the jobs we do, by our relationship with non-Christians in our community, Those are important areas of service. Those are important areas of ministry. They're an expression of our submission to God, love for Him, love for our neighbor. But focusing in on the local church, what are ministries that all Christians should aspire to? One is speaking the truth in love. Another is using whatever gifts God has given us to build up and sanctify the body of Christ. That's kind of the key. Finally then, consummation. To conclude this biblical theology of ministry, consummation. Revelation 22, 
verses 1 to 5. What happens to service or worship or ministry in the new creation? Here it comes. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. Pause. No longer will Adam, having failed in his commission to keep and guard the garden, no longer will that have any negative effects. Everything we let in by our sin will be completely purged and kicked out forever. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is worship restored. This is ministry fulfilled and perfected. Not only that, but it is ministry eternally extended. We will worship God. We will serve Him. What does that look like? I don't know. But it will be perfect. It will be beautiful. It will be all-satisfying forever. So this ministry that we have of building each other up in the local church, of using gifts God has given us, is preparation for that unending and perfect and that ministry that is not hindered in any way by sin. That will last forever. It's a brief biblical theology of ministry. I want to now offer some counsel for all of us thinking as Christian ministers, right? That's all of us. Uh, Briefly, kind of a summary point, the more your heart is set on serving God above all, the better you'll serve others, right? What was my problem when God rearranged my week? My problem was, as much as I would like to think that it was just selfless devotion to my church, and I was disappointed by the, you know, not being able to serve them in quite the way I would have hoped, no, 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 no. Part of my heart wanted the quiet of my office (laughs) and the ability to just interact with other adults on a, you know, peer-to-peer basis without four kids talking at once all the time without having to be meeting the constantly conflicting needs and demands and mediating quarrels and squabbles. And, you know, I was looking forward to the quiet of three unbroken hours in my office to prepare Bible study. I was looking forward to some of the benefits to me of my service in the church. Why it was hard for me in my heart to pivot from the ministry I wanted to the ministry God's gate God gave me is that my heart was not set on serving God above others as much as it should have been. There's an element of service to self that was conveniently smuggled into my service to my church, where I kind of wished I was doing more of the service to my church really because there's some good stuff in it for me, some peace and quiet, some enjoyment. In some ways, it would be a little more restful at times than taking care of the kids nonstop for another week. Calvin said, if you would serve God, forget self. Here's another principle to take from this whole biblical theology. You need neither permission nor pay to do ministry. Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, you don't need to ask anybody's permission to speak truth in love. Nobody has to pay you to do it. And most of the speaking truth in love that we do, most of the time, nobody's getting paid for that. You're just doing it because you love somebody. You're just doing it because you want to see that person built up in Christ. Claude Kitchen, a member of our church, asking me, sweet, heart-searching questions over lunch. He's just doing that because he loves me. Welton Bonner praying for me, encouraging me. He's just doing that because he loves me. Nobody's paying Welton to do that. Welton did not ask anybody's permission to do that. Most of our ministry in the church goes like that. It should be at our own initiative because God has put His love into our hearts and a love for His people. Uh, A few comments on spiritual gifts. First, thinking about how to discover or discern them. Here's four brief points I would give you. Uh, Number one, notice needs and meet them. Just find out what needs doing and do it. Number two, consider what you like and what you're good at along the way. What skills, what talents emerge in the course of trying to meet needs, trying to see what has to happen and how you can help with what has to happen. Number three, listen to others' counsel and feedback. 
about your own service. It could be positive, encouraging, reinforcing. That was really helpful. Have you ever thought about doing more of that? Or, hey, this person told me they're really enjoying studying with the Bible with you one-on-one. Have you, have you thought about leading a small group? Or, you know, hey, that was a great job you did pinch hitting in Sunday school. Do you think you could maybe become a main teacher? All kinds of things. Listen to feedback. Also listen to feedback about ways you might be less gifted than you might think. You might particularly enjoy music. You might not quite be the right person to accompany on piano or singing or guitar. Listen to that humbly. Finally then, figure out where all of these things intersect. Needs, desires, abilities, feedback. Where do all those factors come together? And if you have the ability, focus there. Here's the second point. I think it's on your handout. Yeah, second point on spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts can provide focus. They shouldn't set limits. Spiritual gifts can provide focus. They shouldn't set limits. Do not use as an excuse, that's not my gift. Right? Uh, This week I couldn't say that cooking and doing laundry are not my gifts. I have a regular amount of cooking and doing laundry I typically do. I had a lot more this week of cooking and doing laundry, and we had neighbors kindly bring us meals and all the rest. I still was doing things that were not particularly things I would call my gift. I just had to do them. And life in the church is like that too. Uh, Whether it's fixing the AC problem here that many New Covenant volunteers have helped figure out. Jerry was joking with me saying, you guys might need a deacon of AC. (laughs) Right? Whether it's uh, just finding those needs, whatever they need doing. Yeah, you might might think, I really love serving in these ways. I want to kind of double down and focus more. But don't let that be an excuse to serve in ways that become selfish and self-centered. A couple pitfalls to look out for. The pitfalls of prominence and professionalization. Prominence and professionalization. Uh, We can all too often have an ungodly hunger for prominence, for recognition, for the spotlight, for serving in ways that gain recognition. Here's what the Apostle Paul says about that. Coming back to the body metaphor in 1 Corinthians 12. So Paul starts in 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 24, by uh, starting in verse 12. 1 Corinthians 12, 12, by saying we're all members of each other. We belong to each other because we belong to Christ. We're all baptized into one body. Therefore, each of us are indispensable to the others. We're all interdependent on the others. I can't say I have no need of you because at best I'm an eye or an ear or a hand. The eye, the ear, the hand needs all the other members of the body. So I can't say I have no need of you. What I also can't say is because I'm this, you have no need of me. So Paul's whole point is that the body needs every gift. The body needs every member. We're all dependent on each other. We all have something to contribute. We all are receivers in that we need other people's gifts. This week I needed Taylor and his wife Rachel to cook me a nice meal and help me out and just relieve the burden. Right? I, I was in the position of needing, I also needed some medical care for my youngest daughter. Taylor's wife, Rachel, is a nurse. They kindly helped out late at night, got me a thermometer, gave us some advice about uh, what's the dangerous range for the heart rate, all that kind of thing. She had a fever. Do we have to take her to the hospital? I was a very needy neighbor for a little while there, and they graciously provided for my needs. We're all in the position of needing and receiving. We're also all in the position of giving and supplying. That's the main gist of the body metaphor in 1 Corinthians 12. Then Paul says, 1 Corinthians 12, starting at verse 22, why, why can't you say I have no need of you? On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. So Paul's saying that whoever seems less honorable, we should bestow greater honor on them. There should be a kind of equalizing. We should not seek to live in the body in such a way that we accrue honor for ourselves, in such a way that we gain platform and prestige for ourselves. We should seek instead to redistribute honor to those who are 
lacking it. So any way of thinking about ministering in the local church that is predicated on a kind of climbing up a ladder of prestige or prominence, just put that to death. Just kill it. Just bury it. Anything based on envy, anything based on a sense of why not me, why can't I, what about just, 1 Corinthians 12 says, put it to death. Another passage here that's so searching and convicting, Galatians 5.13, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Literally, this is through love, be slaves of one another, willingly adopt lowly positions with regard to one another. That should characterize all of our relationships in the church. So how does that relate to ministry or aspiring to ministry? We should serve however there is need. We should be grateful for the opportunity to provide for whatever needs we can. We should be eager to serve in ways that are out of the limelight, out of the spotlight. We shouldn't think, well, why can't I be getting, you know, paid to do this, right? Jesus paid it all. I don't need any pay. I would gladly serve as an elder of any church I could be in if nobody ever paid me to do it. If if I can't do this for my job, I would love to do this in my spare time. And there's a sense in which we should all have that kind of attitude about our service in the church. Another pitfall is professionalization. And here, here what I mean is kind of viewing something as only counting if it has a job, a title, a job description, maybe some pay attached to it, if, if it sort of feels official. There's a pitfall here because, you know, in, in, our, in the broader American culture, professionalization is a sort of marker of status. It's a marker of honor. You know, there's certain jobs that are considered professions. There's certain jobs that take a degree or an exam or certain credentialing to get, and they're, they're sort of bearers of status. You're accorded respect. You're held up in esteem. And now, and so what happens is you can import that kind of mentality into the church and just kind of map it onto the church and say, well, this is the work that counts, or this is the person who counts. Because of that kind of professionalization, there can also be a pitfall of professionalization of saying, well, if we want something to happen, we should pay somebody to do it to get it to happen, right? If we want something to take place, we should create a job sort of staff forward. If we want to see something, well, let's pull money together, let's create a position, let's make it happen because we want to see X in the church. Well, the basic principle should be God, the Holy Spirit, is sovereign in distributing gifts. If you want to see a gift, pray for it. If you want to see something happen, pray the Spirit would provide for it. Ministry takes place at the fundamental initiative of spirit-indwelt believers who pour themselves out in loving service. So if you want to see a ministry happen, pray for it and exemplify it. Generally speaking, what a church pays for should lag behind what a church is doing. We're doing this ministry. It's growing. Ah, it looks like, I mean, it could, it could be helped by having somebody give more time and attention to it. Maybe we should think about setting aside some money so somebody can give more time and attention to that. Professionalization could be a pitfall in thinking about ministry. Here's another way. Um, In the broader sort of world of counseling, of therapy, of psychology, psychiatry, uh, that's become more and more prominent in our culture. More and more people see therapists, psychologists, etc. And while there can be many gains and helps from that, there can also be a kind of takeover of like outsourcing soul care to the secular world kind of a big picture trend in the last 50 years. And so there's been different movements within the church that have grown up to try to kind of bring back more of soul care into the church. One of those movements is biblical counseling. There's there's an organization called CCEF that tries to resource biblical counselors. Their motto is restoring Christ to counseling and counseling to the church. We want our soul care to be fundamentally oriented to Christ, accountable to Christ, centered on Christ. And we want to equip the church, not just pastors, but lay people, to be competent carers of others' souls. That's a healthy movement. That's a great organization. I I, I appreciate much of what they're doing. But there can actually be a kind of ironic development down the road. Okay, well, we're not doing secular psychotherapy. Now we're doing counseling in the church. Well, maybe some of these people should train and get credentials and get accredited. And now we're paying some of them to do it. And now, well, maybe if I really want to be a serious counselor, or maybe if I think it would really be more holy and spiritual of me to have a ministry job, well, maybe I should do counseling. There can ironically be a kind of reprofessionalization. We're trying to bring it back into the church and restore it to the church, but actually now it can become its kind of own professional track that can almost kind of run on its own momentum. 
Well, if you want to be a counselor, well, you can take this course and get this credential and we can start paying you to do it, etc. Don't, don't hear me wrong. We, our own church pays some counselors to work part-time and we will gladly refer out to counselors who charge for their services. That's a helpful service. But my point is that professionalization can kind of creep in and colonize our work in all sorts of ways without us kind of knowing it or realizing it. It's not that we should never pay anybody to do anything, but it's that there's a whole lot of worthwhile work to do that's going to come regardless of money ever exchanging hands or not or a title being given. Uh, A couple more. Whoops, I meant to put this one on the handout. Whoops, I deleted a point from the handout. Here we go. Consider the biblical qualifications for deacons as a benchmark to aim for. Consider the biblical qualifications for deacons as a benchmark to aim for. Here's what I mean. As you're trying to grow in your service in your local church, look at 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13, and consider whether you meet those qualifications. And if not, it's something to strive for. It'll help you minister more effectively in the local church. It will also set you up if your church has a need of deacons, of people to facilitate ministry in particular areas, to provide for practical needs in the church. It will set you up to serve as a deacon. Are you willing to serve as a deacon? Just freely giving of your time to meet practical needs and facilitate unified ministry in the church. If you're not willing to serve as a deacon, okay, maybe it's because you're super busy. Maybe it's because you have other responsibilities. Maybe it's because you have ailing family members. Okay. But maybe it's because you don't actually want to be in a role that is just straight up service. Are you willing to serve as a deacon if called upon to do it? It's a good heart check. Um, that's a useful sort of benchmark for all of us. Then finally, and James, I know I'm going a little bit long, but okay. Finally then, kind of narrowing down, funneling in, should your ministry be your job? We're, in a sense, we're going to kind of introduce this question and then think about it more specifically for pastors in the second session. But here I want to address it in a way that's relevant, again, to men and women, all church members, There are a lot of different ways you could potentially serve in full-time Christian work, and we'll consider some of those. Uh, Kind of four different areas you could think about. Again, that these would apply equally to men and women, and they're sort of, you know, they're not strictly identical with pastoral ministry. You could be all these things and not be a pastor. One would be student work or evangelism, you know, with campus ministry or youth ministry. Uh, Another one would be counseling, like I mentioned. Uh, A third would be ministry supporting church staff. So that could be administration. That could be facilitating specific areas of ministry. It could be other church staff besides pastoral. And then fourth would be missions, Uh, being supported financially, specifically in order to be sent out, uh, to bring the gospel to people, to, to places where Christ is much less known. Obviously, men and women doing that. You know, we our church supports some single women in those kind of roles. We'll talk about that more in a minute. There's four different areas you could consider. Uh, and again, my, my basic counsel would be you want to think about a triangle. I talk about this in my book with regard to pastoral ministry. Similar to what I said about spiritual gifts. You want to think about a triangle between desire, ability, opportunity, and you want to shade that whole triangle in with counsel from your local church. So three points, desire, ability, opportunity, and that whole triangle deeply shaded in with counsel from people who know you and whose ministry you have seen. So, start serving in that area if you have an interest. Start volunteering. Start learning the ropes. Start giving your time and effort to it. If you have desires more f- to serve more fully, find out w- how you can take on more work, how you can take on more responsibility. Uh, the training ground for all of these areas really should be local church service. Take initiative, see what you can handle, see how you can be mentored, see how you can grow in that area of service. Um, You know, one, again, bringing about that sort of deacon qualifications, uh, thinking about ministry as a missionary in particular. One thing our church does as we're thinking about who we might support financially to do missions, we kind of have two different levels of support and endorsement. One would be a more deacon level of qualification. Another would be a more elder level of qualification. What we mean by deacon is, You might have somebody who will go into a mission context, but they're in more of a supporting role. They're maybe focusing on evangelism or focusing on equipping. Uh, They're not necessarily the kind of pioneer church planter plowing up the soil, trying to get a brand new work going in an area where there's nothing at all. 
uh, and that deacon level of qualification, we're happy to support people like that. That could be, and we'll talk about some examples of this in a minute, that could be even, say, uh, maybe even a single woman going alongside to join a church planting team and evangelize and disciple sisters in the church and be doing that kind of work full-time in support of an ongoing work. Uh, biblically speaking, that woman's not going to be serving as an elder, but we're happy to view her as a kind of deacon-level qualification, deacon-type, full-time missionary. You know, before we get into some specific examples of this, I think another category just to kind of throw out uh, in terms of, okay, if you have a particular burden or a particular area of service, you want to do it more, you want to get involved, are you thinking about, well, could this even be my job? Another category to throw in is frankly something that some of you did who have come to New Covenant Baptist, which is joining a new work, or getting, or some of, like, some of you guys at Congress Heights, right? Joining a new work, getting involved in a new work. It might mean moving to a new city. It might mean helping a new church, getting started in your own area. That might provide more kind of hands-on, all-hands-on-deck opportunities for service, where if you're coming from a church that's relatively well-resourced, relatively well-provided for, you might think, you know what, it might not be that I'm changing jobs, but that I might be changing churches or even moving to a new city to help out with a work where I can sort of prioritize this type of work more in my life. There might be a more acute need for it, uh, whether an opportunity or a need in a new kind of church. So changing jobs is, is sort of one way to think about jumping into the deep end of ministry. But another way to, think, to jump into the deep end of ministry would be, you know, going to a new church or even a new city in order to build your life around that church and that work in a different way. I want to close this session looking at those four categories there at the bottom. I just want to do a very brief sketch, uh, and these will be all women, all sisters in our own church or who have been in our own church. I'll just give first names uh, of sisters who have worked in each of these areas at one time or another, uh, getting paid to do it, though not necessarily uh, that they still are. So one sister, Amy, moved to D.C. to be part of Campus Outreach, which is a full-time college ministry, uh, kind of extending the reach of the church onto the college campus. She had a fruitful ministry in that, in that for a season. She was full-time in it. She left. She started doing secular work. But she used her post-campus outreach season to become one of our most faithful church members in terms of evangelism, discipleship. She moved into an apartment complex that has a lot of internationals, where she did that deliberately to try to reach out to those internationals from Muslim background, this kind of thing, uh, where she's kept up a regular outreach to people in her apartment complex, again, just out of her own initiative. Uh, I could mention a, a counselor named Alex. Uh, she's been a kind of part-time staff counselor on our church for years. She's married. She's a mom of three kids. Uh, her husband works full-time. She uh, has been counseling for years in a kind of supporting role, but we had a bigger need because a counselor moved away. We had a need for somebody to really step in in a big fashion. Now she's working basically half-time, doing a lot of our hardest kind of cases, taking on some of the stuff that's working most closely with the pastors and helping out in hard situations. She's kind of bumped up to half-time, taking a big step forward uh, in serving our church in counseling. And again, we pay her half-time to do that. Uh, thinking about missions, a sister named Mandy, whom some of you might know. Mandy very wisely prepared for trying to go on the mission field by getting to know a specific context, spending time there, going and living there for a short stint, getting to know the families she'd be supporting, getting to know the leadership of a church. Uh, she kind of had a season of testing it out and then coming back to the church for counsel. And then she went and she joined this church full-time and we helped support her, where she was basically evangelizing and discipling women as her full-time job, uh, living in a country very far away in a context very different from the States. She did that until um, she is very noticeably different in appearance from the, you know, the predominant people who live there <laughs> and sticks out like a sore thumb. There's increasing hostility and opposition to Christianity in this part of the world that she's working in. And it just began to seem unsafe and unwise for her to remain in that situation. So she came back to the States. She was sad to do that, but it seemed wise. She pivoted to then doing full-time student work, campus evangelism, and she's looking for a way to get back out onto the mission field. Um, I think she's a, a godly and exemplary sister who's kind of submitted to the Lord's will, is trying to keep serving him. Uh, she's married now. That'll certainly play into her future plans. Uh, but just a wonderful example of kind of, I'm going to keep moving forward and serving the Lord. And if he puts a wall here, well, then I'll go around it and trust him and keep serving. Uh, another example, sorry, I did this out of order, but another example of serving on church staff in more of a ministry supporting role, be a sister named Lindsay. She used to serve our church as a full-time administrator. 
she really kind of took that job on and developed a whole new set of skills. She was always improving processes. She was always learning more. She was always kind of going above and beyond. That's just how she was. And she wound up doing these like mini stints where she would go and work remotely, doing our church work remotely. She would stay at another church for like a month and do a whole ministry administration audit, like finances, handbooks, practices. Because, you know, pastors don't tend to be the most administratively proactive. And if you're a small church and you're the only pastor and you just have somebody answering the phones or you're answering the phones or there are no phones, the administration could get pretty messy. So she would do like an intensive help session, going and getting other churches' administration in order. It was a wonderful service. Uh, she eventually moved on to a different role. She's serving in a financial capacity with a nonprofit Christian ministry. She lives in another city, goes to another church. She's not serving us in that way anymore. But again, that's an example of even treating a job that was kind of a ministry job in a way, sort of putting even more ministry into her job and doing that for the benefit and blessing of other churches. So I just wanted to, to end with some of those kind of positive examples, both of service as well as flexibility. It wasn't like the ministry switch flicked on when any of these sisters started getting paid for it. And it's not like the ministry switch flicks off when they stopped. So I think that's a good model for all of us. James, I'll leave it to you for what we should do with the time and the <laughs> remaining, yeah, think about the session.